All right. Thank you all for sharing your practice. Allison, do you want to start? Sure. Part two, the core belief. That icy couch. At least let me rest on that icy couch. Hubert Benoit, the supreme doctrine. I'm going to skip the editor's note, but <laughs> I'm going to skip that. When we practice, we begin to understand our mind. And we begin underneath our thoughts to experience for the first time. Once we see underneath all the thoughts we have covering up our experience, what does that feel like? That unknown place is where the practice is, not in the endless analysis of our thought. And when we experience without reacting or judging, we can start to get curious about what we are experiencing. What is our core self? Uh, me, I guess, huh? Yes. Our first, work, our first work is to know ourselves. This is a lifelong task because, you, because to know ourselves requires returning to and uncovering beliefs and decisions we made when we first formed our identity many years ago. You are muted, Lynn. Thank you, Nancy. The birth of our core belief. Before we are born, we actually have it pretty good. For most of us, everything suits us in the womb. We're warm enough, we have enough to eat, nothing threatens us. The minute we are born, though, we no longer experience that totality of being fed all the time in a warm, peaceful environment. It doesn't mean that our parents are not good parents. There's no parent, there's, there's no parent who can supply the craving of an infant for total love and safety. The infant's view is that they should have everything they want immediately. It's just not possible. We aren't physically equipped to serve anything, even a baby in that way. So very early on, the infant, without thinking, of course, begins to get the idea that this is a rocky road out there. Perhaps there's even a pre-verbal version of the thought, I'd really like to go back, but here I am. You're muted, King. Ellen and I were talking earlier today about, about this, you know, when are these thoughts verbal and when are they just not verbal, like a squirrel's thoughts, so to speak. You know, and I was trying to, I, just touching my finger and trying to see if, um, I mean, I certainly have a sensation before I can even use attach words to it, like it feels prickly or it feel, you know, whatever feeling it is. <laughs> so I'm, I'm really curious about that. But she talks about the pre-verbal version of the thought. Okay, the baby <laughs> doesn't know what to do. So as it grows into a child, it works out its own plan. And when things go wrong for you as a young child, as they will, you can't conceive 
that it's because the adults around you might be something less than perfect. You can only see <coughs> that there's something wrong with you. And that is why you're not getting this thing you need. The only answer is there's something individually wrong. That something wrong calcifies into something negative, which I call the core belief. Do you think this is true all the time for, for babies? How do we even know? Like, there's no way to know what babies I, I, are right. perceiving. Like, I'm just yeah. like, I don't know. I. It's not that it's wrong. I'm just like, I'm suspicious because we literally can't know what a baby is, what's going on in a baby's head. Like, why would a baby automatically assume something's wrong with me? Why would this, a baby assume that? This and might be. I think be, it's something wrong with my parent, with that person. Why yeah, wouldn't this might that? be Joko Beck's core belief. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I think she. I think I said this last time. I, I think she gets in trouble when she starts reading infant minds, but she, you could just swing a cat. That's a terrible analogy. Just throw a stick and anywhere it lands, it's going to land on something that has this core belief in it in our culture. It's in our language. It's in our religion. It's in, a, it's in capitalism. It's, it's everywhere. So, I mean, I don't know when, I don't know when I, I picked it up, but it's way before, I mean, it probably was installed, you know, along with language. I mean, that's how early it must go back. That's I also don't know that everyone has the same core belief. Yeah. Like that has to be so like context and culturally dependent. The, what she's talking about is, is a universal core belief among babies. Yeah, I, I don't, I'm not sure that's a, possible. <laughs> I'm, I am, I'm skeptical. I heard something neat uh, not too long ago that the first language was actually bird sounds that people would make, but they had learned it from birds and they could make bird sounds and they communicated that way before any, you know, particular words. I can almost, I can see that because, you know, in some African countries, there are still those click languages, which often sound like there's a lot of birds that make clicking sounds. Mm -hmm. And insects, yeah. cricket, crickets, and so forth. Yeah. Okay, Nancy, I think you're next. The reason you're not getting what you need as a small child has nothing to do with you and everything to do with the grow-ups and the world they live in. But from the standpoint of this developing little human being, the belief arises that there's something wrong with them. I'm not worthy. Good things can't happen to me. Depending on the exact circumstances you went through as a child, your belief will have its own tenor. No two are precisely alike, but there are always some form of there's something wrong with me. Julie, I don't, I don't know when I was a baby, what, but when I already have the consciousness like about six or seven, I was taught that way. Like my mom said that something wrong with you, that's why your friends don't come to this house. Or, <laughs> like, that. or like you get yelled. From adults, it's because you're not like good enough. You're not a good child, stuff like that. Wow. Yeah. But then again, that was something external wow. imposed on you. That's not something that just like you came to. That was something external imposed on you when your mother said, you know, something's wrong with you. Well, these are learned 
And one is just assumptions we make ourselves, and the other is things people tell us. Yeah. I it think you're up, Allison. Oh. Yeah. It is, I was just waiting to see if Kim had anything else to say. <laughs> it is excruciatingly painful to have this belief running your life. Babies can't stand it any better than anyone else. Since they're so smart and they're very smart, they quickly begin to devise ways of handling that. And if the total love just doesn't seem to be appearing naturally, we begin looking for it somewhere else and devising means of getting it. Depending on what you learned and were taught, this may look like anything from being good to acting out from trying to disappear to making a big fuss. The nature of the core belief. Every single person over the age of two or three has a core belief. It's just the nature of being human to have one. This core belief is not something true. It's always, it is always negative. This is because it is a product of the ego or separate self, the nature of which is to feel threatened. Nothing is truly separate. And so if we feel separate, we feel threatened. This separate self, this separate self views life as something that either might please me but I can't count on this or threaten me. So there's always tension and uncertainty there. As small children, when we feel threat or actual pain, we try to separate from it. Usually without conscious thought, we have to figure out how to handle this very difficult and even potentially life-threatening situation that without any fault of our own, we find ourselves in. It is in figuring out how to respond to something out of our control that we formulate a negative belief about ourselves. This young ego, this separate self is frightened and angry and the core belief arises out of this situation. We often first experience that belief as a scream, I can't, I won't, help. The older we are, the more this core belief gets hardened and buried, requiring more practice to uncover. Once we're old enough to have awareness of these structures, then I think it is appropriate to refer to the core belief as a core decision, the decision to continue to live our lives in this anxious way. The hub of the wheel. Hmm. We all have a core belief. You may not know it yet. If you haven't thought about your life this way, <coughs> but it's there. And I'm not saying it's all you are but it's there to some degree or another. If you've practiced for many years and are aware of it, maybe it's very weak and almost non-functional, but it's there. And it will come up particularly in times of crisis. Our work is to know and experience the core beliefs so we can understand the ways we sabotage ourselves. Our core belief for most of us comes down to some version of I feel worthless. That could that can look like I'm not enough, I'm helpless, I can't do anything, I'm disgusting, I'm not lovable. There are a lot of variations, but always on the same separate miserable state. This belief is like the hub of a wheel. Out of it come the spokes, the systems and strategies that we use so we don't have to feel the pain of this false core belief. More on this below. But in short, it's too painful to bear. We can't stand to feel it. 
There's no one who can stand to feel absolutely unlovable. People who feel their core belief strongly and remain unconscious of it often withdraw more and more and begin to do harm. I'm not just talking about extreme cases here. To some degree, we all do this. We cannot bear to feel bad, so we develop our different strategies. Sometimes they're aggressive, sometimes they're placating, very nice and charming. They can be anything. They may look wonderful in the eyes of the world, or they may look disgraceful in the eyes of the world, depending on how you're working this out within yourself. The important thing is not the particular content of your strategies, but that you notice that they are strategies and begin to trace the spokes back to the hub. Finding your core belief. You may not know what your core belief is. Most of us don't. We don't want to see it because it's, because it's always so bad, but not seeing it is just self-protection. And it's not something you come to know through analysis or just playing around within your head. A lot of people deny it. I'm so comfortable with myself, but if you dig enough, if you meditate enough, there it is. When you really see it, it goes bing. And you know what, and you know what, and you know that's it. It has always, it is always, always painful. It's like you're about to vomit. It's that awful feeling. That's the one. When you feel something like a punch in the stomach, that oomph, then you know you've got it. And with that great awful feeling is the beginning of relief because it's not hidden anymore. You're beginning to relieve yourself of the tension of hiding this core belief. Thank you, Nancy. Each time you felt threatened as a young child, each time you didn't feel safe, your mind let out a scream. Even if it was as simple as being three years old and seeing other kids take your favorite toy and nobody tried to get it back from him. Even in such innocent situations, usually a scream comes out, I must be worthless. And for every one of these screams, the child makes a decision about itself. It's inevitable. Each one of these screams contributes to the mass of, core, of the core belief, the building feeling of who I think I am. Painful, exceedingly painful. Each one of these is like a close to death feeling. And every one of us grows up screaming something. Maybe two or three things, maybe the whole caboodle. Don't ignore me, just love me. There is one that is primary, whatever it was, and is for you. Once the screams have solidified into the core belief, that pain has to be dealt with. It's too unbearable. You have to deal with it. So you begin to set up your requirements for life, your systems, your strategies, so you don't have to feel, at least in full-blown measure, the pain of that core. Most of us spend years, decades, or our whole life busy with these efforts to avoid feeling what's there. But practice offers another approach. When we sit day by day, <coughs> by day, we begin to develop very slowly, very tentatively, the ability to return to the only thing that will give us peace, which is to enter right down into the pain of the core belief. You have to dive right into it and learn to live there. It doesn't mean it looks any different to your friends. They won't see what's happening. 
but it is their practice to learn to just rest in the pen. As Benoit said, at least let me rest on that icy coat. There's nothing else to be done except to rest directly in this pen. When you're resting in the pen itself, you begin not to need the covers. You don't need covers for something that is already uncovered. You're in the middle of it. At first, you just do it a little bit. Don't worry, we're not going to do it all at once, but we have to be willing to do something. Sitting builds the power and the sensitivity so that we can be with ourselves. At first, we can do it for maybe 10 seconds. Then over time, three minutes, 10 minutes. Finally, we can sit in dignity in the middle of that. Just sit there and let the pain and the misery be. That's the dignity of sitting. When unreality, the core, meets reality, which is experience, which is experiencing, then slowly the unreality just fades away and you go back into your Buddha nature, your open, compassionate, loving self. You begin to recognize what's underneath the surface, what's underneath even the core belief. There you are. All right. So this is one of the books I think we read in the introduction that she always kept with her. It was oh wait, we have uh, Anne. Oh, good. Hey, Anne. Hey, Anne. I hope you didn't wait long. Did you? Um, no, just a few minutes. Oh, because I didn't see you at first. Yeah, I figured. I figured you're probably reading or something. Um, yeah, we just read about core beliefs. Oh, did you read that whole section? Uh, I don't think it's uh, so. the first the chapter no. starts on we're, the first chapter after core beliefs. We're on page thirty-five. Yeah. Yeah. Let's read the editor's note, uh, Glenn. I think you're next. Mm, the editor's note. Where? On page twenty-seven. On twenty-seven. You want to go back on page 27 to no, read? No, 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 no. Where it says Hubert Benoit. Yeah, it's back on page 27. Oh, see, I have page 33. Okay. Okay. All right. You want to read page 27, right? Back, flipping back. No, no, no. The Just the part. Below. I understand. I understand. Editor's note. Okay. Hubert Benoit, 1904-1992, was a French psychotherapist and writer. My, mom's, my mom first read Benoit, Benoit, The Supreme Doctrine, in the mid-1960s. She felt it was an extremely difficult read. She returned to it over and over throughout her life, and I still have her original dog-eared copy. The sentence from that book, used as an epigraph here, in which she paraphrases in this talk, stuck with her, her, stuck with her most of all. This was probably the most important influential book she ever read for, Zen for her Zen practice. Um, what was the the the, the epithet here? At least let me rest on that icy couch. So, what's the icy couch? That terrible feeling she's talking about that you sit in of I'm worthless. Yeah, usually we avoid it by any means, right? It's so painful to sit there with that feeling. 
Well, it would seem if this is really true that we'd be very miserable people, but maybe we are. We keep coming back to that misery. Well, and we avoid it. We avoid it with so many ways to avoid. Yeah, we you're kind of saying different things, the two of you, but you're, I think they're both true. We avoid it and we keep coming back to it because we don't look at it directly, right? Yeah. And I think she's talking about when you sit, you are looking at it directly and that's, yeah. Joko Beck is talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, should we go on? I think you're next, Kim. See what you do. We shall not cease from exploration. And the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. T.S. Eliot, Little Gidling, The Four Quartets. Gidding, I'm sorry. <coughs> Your core belief, this foundational perception of who you think you are informs your way of dealing with your life. And what I call your basic strategy, your basic strategy is how you behave in reaction to the thought, I am this, therefore, this is the action I must take. I once knew a little boy who had a difficult and who had a difficult and punishing father. His father was very strict. He yelled a lot and occasionally he hit his, his, he hit his son. Now, naturally, this little kid had to do something to survive. He tried yelling, but that didn't work at all. He got physically punished if he did that. He tried ignoring his father, that didn't work. He tried agreeing, that didn't also work. That didn't always work. Eventually, he found that the survival strategy that worked best was to, very, to be very quiet and docile. He became a sweet little boy who was almost invisible. That didn't work perfectly, but for whatever reason, it worked best, and he was able to occasionally be a little tease. Oh, we, uh, Anne didn't read. I can oh, read now. Oh, oh okay. Or when, whenever, I mean, I can. Okay. I I think you're I guess Allison, Allison and then Anne. Allison, yeah. After a while, the boy began to unconsciously respond to everything in his life with this same strategy. If something happened that he didn't like, he would shrink away from it and try to disappear. The strategy became automated, and as he grew into a young man, he used it in just about every situation. It might have been a very poor strategy for some situations and a great strategy for others, but it didn't matter. It was his habit now. And more than that, it was his basic strategy. He no longer had any choice. Whatever difficulties entered his life, he stepped back and tried to become invisible. Okay, uh, eventually he became an adult with only one way of dealing with difficult situations. Uh -huh. As we know from experience, life is unpredictable. It's flowing and it throws up all sorts of things. So a simple rigid reaction doesn't work very well. It doesn't feel good either. And yet most of us have some kind of habitual automatic reaction left over from childhood that we use for almost any challenging situation. This unconscious basic strategy might work pretty well for a while, 
but eventually it stops working. Our strategies are all the ways that we do our life, particularly when we're troubled, so that we don't have to feel the pain of that core belief. We do all sorts of things, and they may look very different from one person to another. One person has to be busy all the time or talking all the time. Another person is always so quiet that you wouldn't know they're there. Some people will tell you off in a minute. Some people will never say anything that would hurt your feelings. Strategies, strategies, strategies. <laughs> Unless you learn to know and explore your own strategy, it's automatic. It just runs. Once we have our set, our set way that we handle life, that's what we do. And we'll do it until we're 95. The thing that brings people to practice is when they begin to see that the strategy doesn't work. For example, perhaps your core belief is, I can't. This is the belief that this is the belief underneath what you do. How people would phrase this core belief can vary. It's impossible. I just can't. I'm worthless. I can't do it. The strategy is how you deal with that belief. You develop whatever you think works with that. It might be complete withdrawal. If you're really hidden away, nobody can find you. That's one way. Somebody like me would say, I absolutely can't do it. So therefore I will do everything I can do to do it well. It looks much better from the standpoint of the world, but it's not really any better. So I was good at everything I did. I made sure of that because that was the only way I could handle the fear underneath. It looks good, but it's not a solution. I suspect that sometimes these can work to your advantage, don't you think? Like the core belief, um, I'm not good at anything. That makes you try harder, doesn't it? Well, that's what she's saying. It made her try harder. You know, some people might, though, just be like, well, I can't do it well, so I'm just not going to do it. Right. And then they're not fully participating. I think it depends on the strategies that they pick. Now, if somebody told me I had to walk 30 miles today, I might say, I can't do it. But there's a difference between realistically knowing I can't do something and that core belief about myself that I can't do it. No matter what it is, they feel different. And you know the difference in your body between the two. One of the hardest core beliefs is you can't make me do anything. It may not be started that way. It may not be stated that way, but it's there. If no one can make you do anything, you resist everything in your life. I think we all have a little of that in us. You can't make me. There's a hell over resistance to any kind of authority. I don't care what you say. I may look like I mean it, but you can't make me. No way. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but that rings a little no. to me. <laughs> me too. <laughs> Becoming aware of your basic strategy. One way to see your basic strategy is just to watch and see what you do. The next time somebody does something you don't like, or you do something you don't like, what do you do? Because we're remarkably consistent, we will all do our strategy. Perhaps your strategy is quite active, performing, helping, accomplishing. 
A lot of success stories in our country are based on a core belief that says, I'm nothing, I'm incapable. So I'll spend my life proving I'm capable. This can be a very outwardly successful yet lifeless way to live. Or perhaps yours is more of a passive strategy, withdrawing, hiding, perhaps putting up a smoke screen of excuses, even drug use. The best way to become aware of what you do, of your strategy, is to notice an experience in which you really get everything you think you want, and then it still doesn't feel right. You're still not satisfied. Our basic strategy is always unsatisfactory. It's limited, and even if we don't feel actively miserable, we feel uneasy, unsatisfied. Once you get an inkling that no amount of stuff, no strategy will actually satisfy you, then you begin to be interested in practice. Otherwise, you won't do the work. You'll just run toward your next strategy. That's all. When we start to pay close attention, we begin to know all our strategies, which tend to just be variations on our one basic strategy. When you are aware of your strategy, it begins to weaken. If you see that you think you have to talk all the time, for example, somewhere in the middle of your speeches, you'll go, oh, I'm doing that again. When you pay enough attention, it begins to enable you to return to the actual present moment, which of course can, can include your pain, it usually does. And some people it's just numbness or something of that source, but there it is. There's nothing to judge about having a basic strategy. Once you see your strategy, what does it feel like? See if you can feel the experience underneath the strategy. The practice is in the feeling and knowing of the underlying experience, not in judging, critiquing, analyzing, or defending it. The wonder of surrender. Sometimes we get right to the edge of the feeling underneath our strategy and we veer off. This happened to me the other night at 2 a.m. Perhaps you know something about that. I could tell you I was right at the precipice of awareness and wanted to swerve. Like anyone else, I didn't want to experience that which I didn't want to experience. It took a long time for me to be willing, finally, to just rest in this experience. Even after almost 30 years of practice, it's not easy. And when you finally see that, you have no choice. It's surrender. What are you surrendering to? You can call it God, or you can call it something else, but it is the present moment. You don't want to enter that present moment minus our ego our preferred version of ourself. If you truly experience your, <coughs> your own pain without, I'm experiencing my pain without judgment or analysis, without even an I, you've given up yourself at that point. Sometimes Zen teachers talk about how you die on the cushion. You give up your personal version of life and just let it be. It's hard, but it's not impossible. And then the wonder happens. If there's wonder there, you may ask, why don't we just go there right away? We don't, want, we don't go there because our whole life is predicated on maintaining this system that we are running. And this is true even though our basic strategy has never worked, never will work. And we even know that it doesn't work. But each time we hit a crisis, unless we practice, 
we come up with a new version of our strategy, a new excuse, a new way of analyzing it and getting control. Practice is seeing what is there without our basic strategy. That's why it's okay to practice without altars or cushions. Personally, I think a little bit of formality is nice. It makes it special in the same way you don't go to prom in your shorts, but it's not the core of practice. Practice is returning again and again to this awareness, experience, and exploration. The fact that you had a moment of awareness three months ago doesn't have anything to do with anything. You have to get it now. Then there's that weightless, um, weightlessness almost. You know each moment as if it's happening for the first time. What so time? That, that, that little boy's um, core belief was that whatever he did, his father was going to be hard on him. And so his, but his strategy was to be docile, right? Um, how about if we write now? Have we read enough? I think now would be an excellent time to pause. I do too. 10 minutes? Yeah, so could we write about that? Either ourselves or someone else's core belief and strategy? Does that make sense? I think our prompt is what what is your strategy for your from handling or avoiding your your core belief? Okay. Let's each write about our strategies. Yeah. And is that okay with everyone? Yes. What's our strategy for handling a core belief? Yeah, what's what's your what's what's my strategy? What what you know, what did cool. I learn to cope, to hide, to bury it, to deal with it? Cool, let's write till eight. Okay. Was that the right prompt for this material? And do we need a prompt or should we just write about whatever comes up from the from what we've been studying and you know the hour we've been Oh and what do you think? I think it's nice to have a topic. Because mm -hmm. we can always veer off if we want. Oh yeah, yeah. I always veer off, but it's nice to have a jumping off point to veer away from. Right. Were you asking the question because you were doubting that it was the right prompt? No, I'm just gathering feedback. Uh, oh. So just a jumping off, off point. Yeah, I've been asking the question about core belief for a few months since Peg started talking about it. Maybe three months ago, was it, Ellen? A while ago. I don't know. Yeah. You know, I kept, I kept saying, this is my core belief. And she said, no, 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 that's something else. That's something else. Was she talking about it in your practice discussion group? Oh, I don't even really remember where. I don't really remember where or when either. But I do think it has come up for me in practice before I even read Joko Beck's book. Well, at first I confused it with... Uh, you know, like there's this idea that there's there's a job that God gives us, this is our life work or whatever. And I was thinking that was our core belief, something we truly like justice is a core belief, but, uh -huh. but that was that was supposedly wrong. But there's some she doesn't say it here, but maybe in another place, Joe Kobeck talks about there's some good core beliefs too. Mm. I think. I think it's Joko that talks about it. Maybe someone else does. I don't know, but based on what we just read, he's 
she said that on the core beliefs are negative, but the strategies may be good. Oh, yeah. well, that, that relates to, can I read mine? That relates to mine. Please. I told my mom that I was trying to do something new and I was having a difficult time at it. She said, you must not be any good at that either. 50 years later, I asked her why she said that. <laughs> oh, she said, I never. My, <laughs> my strategy with not being any good is to persist until I figure it out. I have great faith in that strategy. And then there's a drawing. Oh. Of course, let's see the drawing. The drawing. But I have to uh, turn off the um, background. Okay. Well, so that's the drawing. Nice. Yeah, faith in that strategy, don't you? I do. All those arrows pointing at the target. <laughs> I do. You just shoot enough arrows. Yeah. And your strategy works pretty well. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't I don't know any other, like the boy being docile. I don't know any other strategy that I can think of, you know, of but some people just have so much talent and are naturally so good at things, it seems, when they first do them. Yeah. Or they and, have the exact same core belief and strategy that you do. That must be it. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 it's not true because because they start out like I noticed I had some students who were just so good at the beginning and it just really put everyone else to shame and then they would just kind of stay there. And other people who started really slowly, um, you know, were kind of uh, intimidated by these people, but eventually they practiced and got good, good and passed those people by. So how about others? Anne? No, I'm not going to read mine. <laughs> well, you can say something about it, I, generally. I wasn't, I could maybe, I don't know. Oh, okay. I wasn't very clear. I wasn't feel. I wasn't feeling really clear about a core belief. I mean, I felt like I was just going into. Um, I didn't. I mean, there was really no new. I didn't really have any new insights there. Not that that matters, I guess. But um, I don't know how to explain it. But I didn't feel like I fully. Um, opened anything here okay well and that makes me think about the prompt because uh, the prompt was what is your strategy and uh you'd have to really look at what is your core belief before you could strategy right maybe kim i have a question okay, was, yes was peg when when peg talked when peg talks about the core belief and i haven't talked with this about her or her i don't think i've heard this one from her is she saying, as Joko Beck does, that this is the universal core belief, or do different? Oh, you mean for other people? Yeah, is this? Oh, idea? not at all. That it's okay. She says it's your core belief, and when you finally hit it, hit on it, you'll feel this prickly thing at the back of your neck, kind of similar to what Joko Beck wrote about. 
it's not on the back of your neck, but you said you really feel it when you when you find figure it out. Now, so Joko is laying down kind of a universal premise. I think Allison was pushing back on this a little bit, sort of this universal premise. This is how it all goes down. And once there's that feeling of of, of separation that just comes with being alive, then comes the then we build this core belief that something is missing around it. But it sounds like maybe Peg is saying not necessarily any core belief could arise. Is she, is she kind of with Joko on that? Well, or? I don't know. I'm a little confused by what you're saying. I don't okay. think Joko Beck's saying there's one core belief that all human beings have. I mean, that, you know, that we all have the same core belief if we really get down to it. I don't think she's saying that. In fact, she said there's many variations on it. Yeah. yeah. But it's always she does say it is always negative. Yeah. That's on page 29. Because it arises from the self and separation. Yeah. Okay. It is our self, it seems. I, I, is it? Or is it not really ourselves? Oh, definitely not really. Not really. Yeah. But really, we have Buddha nature, right? So, I mean. Right. But, oh, I suddenly wish Donna were here. But. Well, you know, I like just being it up. This is when I realized how much of Joko Peg, I've probably said this to some of you before, how much of Joko Peg had absorbed because even though she's nothing really, as far as I can tell, not anything really like Joko Beck, somehow I got this from be, just being at Appamata, doing things like learning how to be a monitor, you know, learning how to ring the bells. And, you know, I would go through such, oh, some of you probably felt like this. I just, oh man, the public humiliation of ringing the bells wrong, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> And uh, and feeling it, you know, and then being in in a, a place where okay, it's fine. I screwed up. Oh, I screwed up again and again, <laughs> you know. And everybody still seems to like me. Um, I don't yeah. know. There's something about the Appamata atmosphere that made my core belief pretty stark. And also, Joko talks about sitting with it. I mean. Yeah, you can sit with it in meditation, but you can just feel it any old time, you know, that oh, yuck, that yucky feeling, and then live through it and have sort of some kind of reparative experiences with people. And I, I don't know, I think somehow this stuff that Joko is talking about, Peg somehow manifests at Appamata. That's just my experience. What do y'all think? Have you noticed anything like that? Well, I, I think what I, I had a lot of trouble too with making mistakes with the bells and so forth. And I think it was about people. I didn't want people to see that I wasn't very good. Right. That, that there was kind of like a pretense. You know, when you hit the bell right or do the right moves, you're pretending like you're you're good and then you you do it bad and then people can see through at the truth yeah oh exposed yeah <laughs> yeah i always like, a, like you'd be hitting like the clackers thing and 
one person will be like, you're hitting him too softly. And then the next person will be like, it's too loud. And you'd be like, I'm just trying to please everybody. Why can't I do that? But, um, yeah, I can see that, Ellen, that it's like a, the whole thing with Zen and the beginner's mind and that it's okay to have make these mistakes. It, it allows us to meet them, meet those core beliefs in a way that we might not otherwise. Uh. How, how did y'all feel about the suggestion that I don't remember which page this was on, but where she said, once you know your core belief, once you can see it through practice, it starts to fade. And I'm wondering if from a more Mahayana perspective, does it start to fade or does our relationship to the change like? I think you take it into your practice. Yeah, I do too. And and I, I think especially for me anyway, I, there's probably a number of ways you can do it. But I mean, for me, the loving kindness practice just opened everything up. It fades in importance, yeah. not maybe. So uh, Kosho McCall at, at the Austin Zen Center used to tell this story about a number of times, the same story about this little girl and she complained that there was this big monster in her room as soon as she went to sleep or tried to go to sleep. And finally they told her, well, just stare the monster in the eyes. And she did that and then the monster shrunk down to nothing. And that is kind of like this core belief thing that when you face it, it shrinks down. You know, when you face, if I realize, oh, what's bugging me so much about making mistakes with the bells is that people are going to discover that I'm not very good at it. Um, that then I'm not so bothered by it because it's kind of like, you know, I'm, I don't have any clothes yeah. on. Yeah. They can see me for what I am. And, and, and so what? Yeah. It also reminds me of like being with uncomfortable sensation instead of trying to push it away, kind of turning towards that suffering wherever it lands in your body. And then as you do that, like any sensation, it passes. Unless it's like chronic pain, I guess. That's a different story. But, yeah. but like just the like discomfort of making a big mistake or or um having a conflict with a person or something that a lot of times that will if you turn toward it you can get that sense of it arising existing and passing away yeah yeah there's the the impermanence factor a big strategy for so many people it involves permanence like manufacturing or permanence in their environment and their culture and it's yeah pretty destructive you're you're kind of talking about control yeah control which is one of my strategies for sure um oh yeah my but teacher. but no just just this idea that um you know that the ride needs to stop and things and this is an austin story i mean my god there's nowhere on earth like austin texas to tell the story of 
well, when I first got here in 1972, here they go, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, stop that. It's not healthy. I mean, I don't say that. Um, but yeah, but just, just trying to make things permanent in our environment, our relationships, our love life, uh, our parenthood that are not, it's the, instead of being able to sit in that flux, it's a big strategy. Um, is the fear of impermanence, maybe even a core belief? I don't know. That wanting things to not be impermanent. Um, yeah. Yeah, my dad had a core belief that if things changed, it would not, the safest thing is not to change things. Right, right. And that's a tough one. There's a lot of core beliefs going on there in the in the political world, aren't there? If there were just some way to make it all great again, we'd be all great again. It was a joke. I'm sorry. I could oh. just. Nancy, what about you? Do you have any core beliefs? I'm not sure if I can see um, my core belief, but what I can see is a lot of negative thoughts when some situation come up. Like, I'm not good enough, I'm not lovable, I'm dumb, or stuff like that. And yeah, you, you talked about what your parents said. Yes. <laughs> and so it really, I just my mom, so I, I remember, I don't know if I'm, at that time, how old were I? But what I remember is I, I said in my head that, okay, mom, if you said that I'm done, I will act dumb. As, mm -hmm. And starting from that, I always pretend to be dumb. <laughs> and how long did that last? It, it still lasts until now. <laughs> and oh. one of my best friends just, oh, actually, I, I did not even know that I pretend. So, because it's become a, like, something so like natural for me, especially when I meet new people, I always like show that I really like worldliness and like, I have nothing special. And so most of the time I really, uh, so what, when I realized is when my best friend told me, she said that are you pretend to be dumb? <laughs> and then I said, uh, I'm not sure. But then that is when I look back and I say, oh, maybe. <laughs> is it kind of a female thing too that many females do? In this culture, in Texas. It's pretend to be dumb? Yeah. No. I don't know. I have no. No, Allison, you don't do it. I'm suspicious. <laughs> it's, uh, like, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that used to be true. That's that that is not something I experience among people now, but I think that was true at one point. I feel like that is less true than it might have been. Yeah. Good. Yeah, I can see myself having grown out of a lot of maladapted behaviors, you know, as as I, I wrote them down. And I think I don't do them as often, or I'm a little more aware of them. You know, whatever the 
pretensions are, you know, trying to hide the core belief. Do you all feel like, like over time, you've gotten a little more mature and... Well, we talked about it in terms of the bell ringing. Yeah, yeah. What core beliefs did you have that, that you had to overcome in terms of your swimming? Because Ellen did competitive oh, swimming. That, was, uh, that would be one of my uh, ways I adapt is I find things I'm really good at and stick to them. Were you good at it initially? Uh, no, or? I was really much better swimmer as an adult than a kid because I, I was a, kind of a small kid. But, um, but still, I was... I was pretty good at it, you know, and uh, and so I mean, yeah, that one of my uh, adaptations is to find things I'm a, I'm good at, and I do that, <laughs> you know. I don't do things that I I try not to have to do things. I'm going to make mistakes. So the question for me is, do, is there really only one core belief? Because I feel like most of us have several. I agree. Yeah, it seems like that's more. Right. And that was my question about the way Peg frames this. Does she feel like there? Does, so it sounds like, is she saying that there's a central, that there's a central process for that happening? that starts from the formation of the self and separation and from that go ahead we should ask her i don't know <laughs> oh that's a good idea <laughs> you want to patch her in <laughs> <laughs> well let's see i'm gonna see her tomorrow kim we're gonna see her tomorrow at our practice discussion group we should ask her yeah Okay, we'll ask her and we'll- So your question is, is there one or many? Is that the question? Is there one or many core well, I think beliefs? we've actually asked two questions tonight because Glenn was sort of asking, is there one universal one or are there many? And my, I was sort of asking, does every person just have one or are there, can one person have multiple core beliefs? Okay, we will pass the questions on. How about I'm, that? This is awesome. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, should we? So uh, then next week we will have uh, what answer question before reading books. Uh, yes. And Ellen will remember to ask the questions tomorrow. I've written them down. Do y'all want to start a new chapter? Or? No. Let's wrap it up. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, this chapter is a little, uh, I mean, it's it's good, but I, I don't think uh, we'll get it done by 8.30. And I think we need to really think about this. Yeah. Thank um, you so much. Because it's, it's occupying a lot of, um, like, emotional energy, isn't it? This core belief. That's the problem with it. Well, yeah. In and of itself, it does. It's making us tired, in a way. Not at this moment necessarily, but in our lives. Oh, horribly tired. I mean. But I think it's also making us achieve. 
you know, like Glenn and what you all achieve. the stuff you're building, there must be something. made me achieve. It made me go, I'm, oh, well, not I, there. I'm not doing that as a kid, you know. It, it just depends on the person. I guess you're you're absolutely right. Yeah. That That's another strategy is I'm not going there. I'm not going to deal with that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. You think I should do this? Well, and I'm you know, uh, Peg gave us the question, uh, what is your understanding of the teacher-student practice in Zen? In Zen? And um, maybe part of the, the uh, part of the job of the teacher is to to push people when they're avoiding. Is that what you think? That's what I think, yes. What do you think? Well, I wouldn't know that I would use the term push. Encourage? Point. Point? Point. Direct. Yeah, something like that. Orient. Orient is good, yeah. Awesome. What word would you use, Nancy? me huh um i just thought of it and now it's disappeared um facility don't play, don't, don't play dumb nancy <laughs> <laughs> no you already know me so i will not do that. <laughs> wait are you still waiting for my answer? Oh, no, I think no, we're just sitting. Kim was. <laughs> yeah, Kim was. Do you, do, you, do you first answer these in your mind in, in Taiwanese or whatever language you... Yeah, no, Vietnamese, uh, no, before... Uh, uh, yeah, before I need to, but now, no, I'm thinking in English. You are, okay. Yeah, yeah. because the process to translating is like, uh, it got lost in meanings and interpretations, so... It's not working that well. I see. Do do you do you dream in your native language or in English now? Mm, good question. Um, I think it depends on who I see in the dream. Okay. There you go. Makes sense. That's awesome. <laughs> That's so cool. Yeah. Okay. Thank you all so much. Thank what a lovely you. evening. It was a great, great discussion. Good night. Good night. Good night. Good night.